This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur, also the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everyone doing out there? Uh, I am in here when I would like to be out there. Uh, The uh, cause of my consternation here is that uh, I was supposed to be at a concert tonight, and the concert was canceled. And that concert was something that uh, was one of those things where two of your favorite bands wind up in the same place at the same time, and the last time you saw them was when you were 19, uh, sharing a bill. Thursday and Cursive were supposed to be in town tonight. Uh, bought a whole bunch of VIP tickets. Was going to bring so many people I know, especially ones that have never heard of either band. Uh, they both remain for me the sort of band where uh, there's I have hand motions to all of the songs. Every lyric I, I can shout. It's, it's wildly embarrassing, especially for somebody in their 30s, but I will die like I lived in 2003. Um, I'm kind of bummed about it and kind of 
the bummer part of it is that they had to cancel the first part of their tour together because people in both bands and some of the supporting acts tested positive. Uh, Thursday had, in fact, had a New Year's show in, uh, in their hometown of Jersey uh, that they had to cancel because somebody near them tested positive. So just a, sort of a, it just keeps rolling there. Um, and I should be thankful <laughs> that they canceled it because I did not have the self-control <laughs> to not go to an event that I'm sure would have made at least one person in my friend group sick and thusly me by extension. Um, I didn't have it in me to not show up to a thing that my wife and everyone around me and me knew was probably a bad idea. Um, that said, their cancellation of the first part of the tour ends tonight, and tomorrow night they're in St. Louis. And there's a little there's a little part of broken me that's like, you know, if I put on two N95 masks and maybe make the drive... No, no. Gotta listen to... <laughs> Fate said no, and also there's no chance the St. Louis show is happening. But if you are in St. Louis and you do go, please uh, have a whiskey on me. Uh, send some photos. Much appreciated. Uh, today on the Streetwise podcast, uh, we've got a lot going on. Um, later in the show, you will hear my interview uh, with Susan Kander and Warren Ashworth uh, about their experimental historical novel, We the House. Uh, you want to stick around for this one. I, I have... I cannot remember the last time that a piece of media caught me so fully by surprise. Um, you, you, trust me, you'll love it. Uh, and then we've got uh, next Music Corner, as per always. But first up, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment uh, is reading a piece uh, written by Michael Mackey about the comedian Bridget Everett and her new television program uh, made by the Duplasses. Uh, it's, it, we've got a great feature on it here. Just take a listen to Jason. Jason, take it on. Little Apple to Small Screen, HBO's Somebody Somewhere is Bridget Everett's Cancification Comedy, by Michael Mackey. It's been a minute, but one of the last times Bridget Everett was performing on stage in Kansas City, she sang an ode to tits. Her tits. The audience's tits. Pretty much anyone and everyone within her line of vision was fair game for mockery, whether they had tits or not. As she speaks sang with raucous aplomb, Everett got off stage and meandered through the audience, riffing on the size, shape, and overall dexterity of mammary glands. It was musical improv at its absolute best, rapid fire and relentless. By the time she ambled back on stage, the audience was frothing at the mouth from laughing so hard. She took half a beat to catch her breath and casually proceeded to introduce her mom, who was seated in the theater, the perfect capper. The Manhattan, Kansas homegirl had struck again. When you do your thing, the people are going to listen. Everybody likes tits, she says when we remind her of that night. My mom was in the house, so I had to deliver something. I had to sing a song for her. The Little Apple Per Everett's telling, the Kansas native had a fairly idyllic standard upbringing in Manhattan, a.k.a. the Little Apple. Her family was well-known in the college town where her dad was mayor back in the day. Her brother, Brad, held the title many years later. We're kind of like the Kennedys of Manhattan, Kansas, she once jokingly mentioned to Amy Schumer on the comedian's podcast, Amy Schumer Presents Three Girls, One Keith. When asked about growing up in Kansas in the 80s, she waxes nostalgic. I just loved it, Everett says. Going to the lake and driving around with my friends, listening to the violent femmes, you can get your driver's permit when you're 14. Everett cracks up as she recalls her first time behind the wheel solo. I sideswiped my friend Peter's car on my first day and he was like, eh, don't worry about it, she says. 
My mom was so mad. So how did a nice girl from Kansas get her start doing body cabaret in New York? Well, I was never a nice girl, which was part of the problem, she confesses. In addition to the occasional minor fender bender, Everett divulges she was a perpetual wild child growing up. It didn't necessarily serve her well, particularly in her teen years. Growing up, I got in trouble a lot for being wild or having a dirty mouth or being a little too much, says Everett. And that's what drove me to New York. Well, that and she was pissed that she never once landed a lead in a school musical. Understudy, yes. The main role, no. I was like, put me in, coach. I never got those opportunities, Everett says. It started in middle school. The only chance I got to really shine was in show choir. The great equalizer because you're all singing the same thing. Everett studied opera at Arizona State University. I bumped around doing karaoke for about 15 years before I found cabaret in the New York downtown performance art scene, Everett says. I felt seen, and people appreciated me. They appreciated my voice, what I had to say, and the wild side. In a way, she has the sunflower state to thank for her success. I was super tenacious, she says. You gotta have a big fire in your belly, and that started back in Kansas. HBO comes calling. A myriad of bit parts in a few meteor roles, including 2017's rap-focused drama Patty Cakes, helped propel Everett along, but she never really found the perfect outlet for her sing-out-loud, sing-out-strong persona. She did find an ally in comedian Amy Schumer, who welcomed Everett to open for her on Coast to Coast Tours. That gave Everett the perfect opportunity to do her thing, spewing body balls-out original songs amidst occasional stand-up fare. Glance back at the four seasons of Inside Amy Schumer, and you'll spy Everett in nearly a dozen episodes bringing the house down. As Everett's exposure and confidence grew, so did her vocal prowess. When HBO reached out about a series deal for the comedy show Somebody Somewhere, the goal was to create an autobiographical-adjacent show which paid homage to Everett's upbringing. Everett promptly secured Carolyn Strauss, a TV titan with a killer track record working on shows like Game of Thrones, Chernobyl, and Treme, to help nuance the show. She just executive produced Game of Thrones, so this was a lateral move, of course. Everett jokes. An ensemble of eclectic talent on the production and crew team only added to the show's premise. Co-creators and executive producers Hannah Bose and Paul Thurine joined in the celebrated fright alongside director and executive producers brothers Jay and Mark Duplass. Listing credits for the Duplass brothers would fill the rest of the page, so just pretend to insert the last two decades of indie films and TV here. Yes, they are that prolific. The result is a sentimental seven-episode comedy series debuting January 16th on HBO. We wanted to show what it might be like if Wild Child stage singing Bridget had stayed in Kansas and what life might look like, Everett says. Being able to engage with the people around her is very similar to me. The thing that's most parallel to my real life is my relationship to music and singing and how that affects who I am. Everett says a collaborative spirit and elaborate touring of Manhattan brought the Kansas-centric show to life. We all sat in the room and dreamt up the world and the series together, Everett says. The things that make me happy, make me sad, make me laugh, it's a joint effort. I'm really excited because I feel it shows not just the tits of me, but also the heart. In this series, Everett plays Sam, a tried-and-true Kansan on the surface, but underneath is struggling to fit the hometown mold. Singing isn't just Sam's outlet, but her saving grace, and leads her on a journey of self-discovery. Along the way, she finds her community and her voice. Based on a truish story. As a fictional spin on Everett's life, Somebody Somewhere tends to focus on her character Sam's family and her merry band of misfit friends. Think one part slice of life, one part warts and all approach. We all agreed early on that we wanted a very honest, almost documentary approach to observing life in Kansas as it really is, says director J. Duplass, which, if we did our job right, should contain a healthy amount of family angst, farmland, an open prairie, and a shit ton of giggles. As usual, we let Bridget and the characters lead, and we tried not to put any spin on that. 
Casting played a crucial role in the show's authentic nature. Banter between characters is all too Midwest familiar, quirky, quippy, yet mundane. The whole show feels organic to a fault. Several castmates were longtime friends of Everett's. Mary Catherine Garrison, who plays Sam's uptight sister on the show, was Everett's roommate for eight years. Murray Hill, who plays Fred Rococo on the show, is another close colleague. Character actor Mike Hagerty has a plum role as Sam's long-suffering dad. I remember walking in the room when I read with Mike and I just started crying, says Everett. I felt this connection to him right away. Same with Jeff when he read for the part, we all just knew. The Jeff she's referring to is Jeff Hiller, who plays Joel, Sam's neurotic confidant and burgeoning BFF. Hiller plays Joel with a quiet sincerity, and he has some of the most spit-take-worthy lines in the show. During an episode where a tornado is bearing down on the town, because Kansas, Joel and his new puppy are taking refuge near an outdoor bunker. When an unseen varmint skitters across the concrete, Joel squeals in terror. I cannot afford to get rabies again, he laments. As the series progresses, Sam and Joel find a kindred spirit in each other. Naturally, they begin hanging out and offering up opinions on everyone in town. Half the reason their dialogue feels so genuine on screen is because it was often interjected on the fly. Joel Hiller is an improv genius. We sort of excel in being in the moment and letting it ride, Everett says. Some of my favorite moments were songs made up on the spot. There were a lot of scenes between Joel and Sam that make their relationship very special. Hiller is such a scene-stealing comedic revelation that we're predicting an Emmy nomination for him. Jeff and Bridget knew each other from the downtown New York City comedy world, so they brought that natural chemistry to their characters, says showrunner Bose. We could watch the two of them just sit in a parked car all day. Everett points out that many of her hardworking castmates have been trying to get their big break for years. This show is the culmination of that perseverance. We're all about the same age and we've all been slugging away for years, Everett says, and now we're all on a show together, getting our shot together, and it feels really special. That's the tender Kansas girl and me talking right there. 100% Bridget Kansasification Another co-star on the show is the city of Manhattan, Kansas itself. Despite being shot in Chicagoland, producers went out of their way to ensure as much wildcat and hometown pride made it into the show as possible. We scouted for days until we found one specific downtown that had the feel and limestone of Manhattan, says Bose. Says Boss. 100% Bridget Kansasification, co-creator Paul Thorine adds. She was in our tiny writer's room every day, on location scouts, in our meetings with props and costumes, even in the edit after we shot. Everything had to pass through her barometer of what was right and authentically Kansas. He's not kidding. Everett had a specific list of things she wanted in the show, including particular storefronts like Varsity Donuts. We wanted to highlight all those things, the things I look forward to when I come home, says Everett, like we stop and get Alma cheese curds on the way from the airport. If you haven't had them, you gotta get with it and the old palace drugstore where I grew up getting soda and stickers. All the things you run away from, but you find yourself coming home to that feel so special. Bright Lights, Big Kansas City Always a storyteller, Everett was also quick to reminisce about her adventures visiting Kansas City growing up. We used to go there with my mom, and we'd stay at the embassy suites near the plaza, she says. They'd have free breakfast and happy hour at night, and my mom would light it up in the bar. My brother would sneak us drinks, and we'd all roll down in the morning to have breakfast. When quizzed if Kansas City can claim the comedian as one of our own, Everett is more than amenable. Yes, yeah, spread me out. I'm a big girl, she retorts. Everyone gets a piece. I'd love going to the plaza as a kid and still do. A lot of fond memories. And Westport? I always thought I was so cool when I was in Westport. Superstardom looms. For all of her larger-than-life antics on stage, Everett is fairly reserved when the spotlight isn't on her. It's quite the dichotomy, her producers say but it gave the writers plenty of fodder for moments of low-key brilliance on the show, like Sam quietly worrying about her aging parents. I think what I find most fascinating about Bridget is that her presence in life offstage is actually somewhat quiet and private and super thoughtful, says Duplass. 
That's really the lifeblood of the show, a middle-aged woman coming to terms with herself and her family in a rigorously honest and funny way. So the contrast between that and her explosive onstage persona is where the electricity lives for me. The show is rife with character arcs viewers won't see coming, and it also offers up scenes for characters to break into well-positioned, soaring show tunes. If there ever was an ideal vehicle for the likable Everett to show off her skill set and vocal chops, somebody somewhere is it. I would say come for Bridget and stay for the ensemble, says Duplass. Every human being in the show is so special and integral to the family we've created. And now it's time for Nick's Music Corner with a very rare live cut of a cover song. This is... I, I know you'll enjoy this. Nick? Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Last summer, I went to a lot of outdoor shows on the patio of the Replay Lounge, and one of the most fun experiences I had was seeing Kansas City's Hembry play. The band hadn't performed in Lawrence in a good long while, and it marked the first chance for local crowds to hear the new songs the band had been working on during lockdown. In addition to past favorites from their debut, House on Fire, Hembry debuted live versions of songs like Operators, with a guest spot from Ebony Tusk's Marty Hillard, along with a cover of Talking Heads' Girlfriend is Better. When the cover started, I absolutely lost my mind and danced myself crazy for the song's entire duration. Surrounded by friends on an absolutely perfect summer evening, it was one of those musical moments I desperately missed over the preceding year and a half, and getting to fully lose myself in a performance was a true delight. Hembry released their cover recorded at Joshua Tree a while back, and getting to play it whenever I want is a real joy. Their next album, It's a Dream, is out Friday, February 4th, and the band will celebrate with an album release show that night at The Truman with Madison Ward and Dream Girl. For more information, follow the band on their socials at Hembry Music and at their website, hembrymusic.com. Here's Girlfriend is Better. Who took the money? Who took the money away? Who took the money? Who took the money away? It's always showtime here at the edge of the stage. And I, I, I wake up and wonder what was the place? What was the name? We want away, but here we go again. Takes over slowly, but doesn't last very long. No need to worry, everything's under control. It's all beauty, but no hard feelings. What do you know? We're being taken for a ride again. 
making sense, making sense. Stop making sense. Stop making sense. Stop making sense, making sense. Stop making sense. Stop making sense. Stop making sense, making sense. I got a girlfriend that's better than that. Nothing is better than Jason Kander. Uh, her and her husband uh, wound up collaborating on a book together um, during pandemic. He started writing it from a place of loving the history of a house and a fascination with wood. And then she got involved because she is very good at words and feelings. Uh, but I, I cannot wait for you to hear this. One of my favorite interviews I've done on this show uh, just two delightful artists and uh, what they've made together here. Tune in. Here we go. Uh, welcome to the Streetwise podcast. Would you introduce yourselves? <laughs> sure. Uh, my name is Susan Kander. I grew up in Kansas City a long time ago and um, have recently written a book, a historical novel, my first with my husband, uh, also his first. And I'm Warren Ashworth, uh, co-author. <laughs> I love that your bio is significantly shorter. That's that's a good husband deferring move, but also uh, your your wife's portfolio of work extends across eighteen different genres of uh, of <laughs> of types. So, uh, yeah, what is the move from uh, writing opera to writing historical fiction? Oh, uh, first, let me say it is it is not a move from <laughs> it just it was an accident, uh, I think would would yeah. almost be an honest statement. Yeah. The book uh, was started by my husband. Warren started it in January of 2020, and he came to me in February of 2020 because he realized that the book was just about 100 percent dialogue. And since dialogue is my happy place as a person who wrote plays and then libretti uh, he thought maybe I could help him out and the idea was so charming to me that I said sure and that's how we got started and then the pandemic happened <laughs> well it's so nice that you were willing to do him a favor I Oh, after all these years. years. <laughs> yes, I figured after all these years, why not? So uh, I was I was sent a copy of your book, and uh, I I was told it was a piece of historical fiction, and then I started it and was uh, very shocked by what form that was because I feel like historical fiction 
does not accurately sum up the scope uh, and the the breadth of concept here. Uh, would you tell our audience what the story of the book is? <laughs> wow. Um, the story of the book is a house is built on the Kansas prairie in 1878. It happens to have actually been built by Warren's great-grandfather, Henry Luke Hart, and it does still stand on the Kansas prairie. And on page one, we learn that a portrait of a woman has come to hang on the dining room wall and they meet. I will not, I will not give you the particulars of how they meet, but they meet and they carry on a relationship that grows wider and deeper and more and more emotionally human over the next 150 years. I, I feel like I have to acknowledge what you're, you're trying to put a spoiler warning on because it is on the back of the book and yes. on page one. But this, I, I, I think I was struck from it from the start because it has the sort of uh, narrative design that in my life I ascribe to very fascinating indie art video games where, where there are two players trying to interact with each other, but I do understand the form of communication. The, the rules of this are, are sort of that uh, the house speaks in, in second person and cannot see or perceive anything inside of the house, but develops a relationship with a portrait that can see only the living room and only the portrait can understand human beings because the house cannot hear sort of things so temporal. Uh, and so they have to communicate with each other to sort of feel out uh, what is happening. And somehow you managed to take a, uh, a multi-century story and let these two characters play it out, but also develop into a loving relationship. I, I don't think that you can pitch that to somebody and have them process with the elevator pitch exactly what the heck it is they're about to dive into. But you're there on page one. And I was just like, okay, okay, I wasn't ready. I knew it was a story about some people that lived on the plains. That is not what this is, but it is also that within another version. Uh, this is one of those where like, I'm just excited to talk to the creators because I'm like, how? Where good. did that come from? That's great. What like dream did you wake up from and jot that sure. down and the next morning go like, that doesn't make any sense? <laughs> That's great. There is actually, there is a story to that. Um, we um, were having dinner one uh, New Year's Eve in um, 2019. And uh, the host, we were sitting in a lovely old farmhouse 18th century farmhouse, big long table, nice fireplace. There were eight people around the table and the host who I know very well, I'm an architect by trade. And the host is a friend and, but started out as a former client, somebody I have great respect for. And she, at one point she's telling a story about the renovation of the farmhouse that she's clearly told before. And she turns to the portrait that's hanging over the, the sideboard and says, oh, 
But you know all this already, don't you? <clears throat> that was the spark. Uh, I combined that with the uh, this house that I adore, that I think is very special to me as a lecturer in architectural history. It's a house, as Susan said, that was built by my great-grandfather, and it has a great intrinsic quality, and I, I believe it has a soul. Uh, I believe that there are houses that have a soul, uh, houses that people come and go, but there's, a, there's something in a, in a great house that can linger, that is greater than the, the, the succession of people who've lived there. So I came to pick this house and that painting, and I set them up together. And that page one that you read basically was the first thing out of the typewriter. And, and we'd, it just went from there. And thank God I had Susan to to help add the color. Now, now, now you're just bragging that that's the first thing that you wrote. Come on, that's, that's unfair to other writers. Um, I love that what you're describing would for any other writer be a haunted house in the negative, but you are suggesting that houses can be haunted in the positive or perhaps the neutral, that, that any great place can have a spirituality about it. That is a very good way to put it. We, one of the things we hope people will kind of, what will float into people's heads as they read is to think about houses or any kind of domicile, apartment, house, doesn't matter, that they have lived in, in their lives that might, that might have gained a place in their own heart or their own mind as an ally or as a protector. Um, a refuge. Places, a refuge. We want people to think of uh, buildings that have had special meaning to them. I, I, I enjoyed that meeting. because as this is uh, a house that is from your lineage, like it feels like you are mythologizing this, this place, but also through your story, the place itself is mythologizing your family. And that felt like such a, a wonderful, like, turnaround. <laughs> yeah. Brock, that's a great comment. That's lovely. One, that sort of goes hand in hand with something I've been uh, wanting to say is Warren's passion for wood frame architecture for American domestic architecture is kind of limitless. And uh, part of my job, as his partner was to limit <laughs> exactly that. And uh, early on, uh, one of the things I had to break to him gently was that this was not going to be a treatise on American wood frame architecture. It wasn't gonna be a textbook. It wasn't gonna be uh, a historical pamphlet if he wanted to write a novel. She took out all the footnotes. I did. <laughs> But at the same time, what you just said about mythologizing the family, Warren never knew this great grandfather and um, did not know almost any of the people who are in the novel. Uh, so we knew their names, we know their dates, we know the, the bullet points of their lives, but that allowed us to uh, take 
nonfiction and turn it into fiction, essentially mythologizing this family any and, which way we want it. And just to be clear to your listeners, who uh, the there are people in this book. There are there is more than just a house and a and a portrait. There they follow the life of the Hart family, which lived in the house, who lived in the house from 1878 to 1947, and that who they are a real family, and they were they are my ancestors, and so we were able to. So there's marvelous characters there and people that we were able to to work with. The only one that I knew was my grandmother, who left that home when she was 19 and um, moved away. Uh, but it she it's I, I still have enough clues about her to form uh, some of the other characters. And and based on the nature of the rules that you set up, like. There, it isn't even a first-hand account in the moment because one character has to explain to another character and you establish mm -hmm. from the outset that this character is not particularly fond of the situation that they've been placed in or the people around. So even, even that is a mythologizing in the moment. It's, it's so fascinating. When I, when I saw that the book had an afterword from a historical society member uh, complimenting the, the work that was done, I, I think that I embarked on it in in much the way that I thought when I first saw the cover. I was like, "Oh, this this will be akin to like a little house on the prairie." And no, it's it's more little house on the prairie if uh, the uh, God figures from "It's a Wonderful Life" were explaining it to Clarence. Uh, it was just like, "Oh, I was unprepared for the the level of meta context characterization we were doing." But also, you could have talked about wood for a hundred pages in the middle. Certainly, I've read. Uh, books that <laughs> every part of this was so compelling. I don't think I would have minded. Um, Thank you. To, to tie back to the uh, yeah, the level of research that you've done, like it it is fascinating to. What what was the most interesting thing that the two of you turned up as part of the research into the actual people? Were were there any big surprises there? Were there surprises that you gleaned from other people or families in the time period and area that you were like, let's fold that part in? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, it's a great, it's a lovely a good question. question. I'm going to show you an example of a piece of research. This is the class photograph. This is a photograph. Warren's showing a photograph. This is the class photograph from uh, uh, Edith Hart, my grandmother's uh, uh, fifth grade class in Newton, Kansas, where, where the book is set. This picture came down to us through research that actually has been done by the householders themselves, the people who currently own Ambleside and have been restoring it since 1994, and who themselves have done an immense amount of uh, research on the house and also loving restoration of the house. Well, in that photograph I just showed you, there are at least... There's about 50 um, kids, uh, there's and about 10% are black. So we have a chapter. This is 1880s, eight, uh, uh, you, uh, late uh, 1880s, 18, late 1880s. Uh, no, I'm sorry, this is early 1890s, but anyway. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, We're still married. The, it, so I think we, I think it was a surprise to me. I didn't grow up in Kansas City, but um, it, and so I don't know the Midwest very well, but it was a surprise to me that 10% of the 
class in, in her, in 1890, he was uh, black. And so that comes to play a, a role in the book, in one of the chapters, in terms of, of, of the importance of uh, African-Americans to the foundations of, of, of uh, pioneer Kansas. So also there is, uh, you, you, you start your research and then you keep following it along its path. Here is another picture I'm showing you of the graduating class in 1901 of Warren's grandfather. And you'll notice it's about, it's about 20% uh, of that fifth grade class size, right? There's really only right. about one fifth as many students, zero African-Americans. Right. And we found that to be telling and interesting and um, the sort of thing that, uh, that we wanted, we didn't want to be ignorant of as we wrote the book. Well, as the person that wrote Driving While Black, I would not expect you to be ignorant of racial issues. As, as you mentioned, like we're still married, how much of the process of writing this book while trapped inside for two years uh, was the man that loves wood uh, speaking as the house and the woman who loves dialogue speaking as the portrait? Did you guys just hash this out in the living room? <laughs> I'll take the fifth on that. We did very well. We so I, I'm so fascinated because there there must be something so interesting about communicating with the people that have dedicated their lives currently to restoring the house that have such love for a thing. What what was it like to have started a project and be like, oh, there these people are are so obsessed with it, like that what what came from your conversations with them? <laughs> well, um very interesting was how we even discovered them. Warren, one day, I can't remember how, got a bee in his bonnet about this house a uh, long time ago in 2007. I guess he were putting together lectures on American domestic architecture. And he said, he said I think I remember my, my mother telling me that there's this house in Kansas. To back up just a little bit, I'm from Kansas City. Warren is from the East Coast. And in my wildest dreams, I would never have believed that he had an iota of, uh, of, of root in the Midwest. That is just the last thing I would have expected. This is a very either New York or uh, California family. Um, so he said, I think there's this house. He looked it up and found uh, a, a way to do research on this house by calling, by actually reaching out to the historical society in Newton. Blessings upon all research librarians, by the way, and all historical societies all across the country. Um, so he wrote to them and he said, have you ever heard of this house? I think it was called Ambleside. And it was built by my great-grandfather, Henry Hart, around this time, I think, maybe. And he got a letter back immediately saying the house still stands. It is now got an address on Ambleside Lane. And um, here are the people who live there. So he wrote to them. And they wrote back immediately on 
uh, stationery that had a gorgeous engraving of the house on it. So we knew immediately that they were people who loved Ambleside, which was great. I, I, I would love a return to periods where houses had names. Feels like something that certainly imbued something with the spirit that we, uh, we have lost now. Uh, when can we expect to see the musical production of this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not a musical, but gee, we sure would love to turn it into either a theater piece or a movie. We think it would be a lot of fun. Uh, finally, before I let you guys get back to your day, uh, Madam Kander, anything that you want to say to your nephew here in Kansas City? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's about a week ahead of us on COVID, and we hope he feels they all get better. <laughs> uh, he he had a tweet the other night that was, uh, "I've just turned forty. I've never been high before. Both me and my son have COVID. I'm gonna have a gummy and watch the Beatles documentary." And as a friend of Jason's, I was just like, "I love that for him. I'm just so happy." Uh, yes, that that yeah. is a man that needs to relax just. 50% more at all times, so. Exactly, exactly. We've been in close touch. He gave us the whole rundown on how the how it's gone through their family, and so. I love that you have a Monarch's banner on the, on the pennant on the wall. So behind. do I. That's really cool. My yeah, father was, was, yeah, my father and Jason shared a great love of baseball, and uh, dad was a friend of Buck O'Neill's, and he was a, a very great fan of the Monarchs. Uh, I was uh, there for uh, Jason when he announced his mayoral campaign in the Negro Leagues Museum. And I was like, I know that he chose this for, for a reason. Um, well, thank you guys so much. Uh, we the House, where can people find it? <laughs> you can find it at Amazon. You can find it on uh, Barnes and Noble. You can go to any bookstore and have them order it. And you can buy it from the publisher, Blue Cedar Press. You can go to uh, our website, the book itself. Ambleside has a website. <laughs> which is? Uh, which is we the house book, one word, we the house book.com. Uh, congrats to both of you. I, I have not been that surprised by a piece of media in, in easily years. I, I was not prepared for what I was diving into and right. almost immediately was just blindsided. So, it's got my highest recommendation that people pick it up. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. I'll talk to you again when the next one comes out. Terrific. It's Brock. a deal. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brock. Just a thank you. We the house. Yeah, go get it. It's, it is that good. Uh, this has been the Streetwise Podcast. I've been Brock Wilbur. Thank you guys so much for listening. Be safe out there. Be smarter than me out there. Please take care of each other. Pitch in and we will make it through. Bye, 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 bye. This was a production of The Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.